This is Future You with Jeff Salingo and Michael Horn. Hello to this episode of uh, Future You. I'm uh, Jeff Salingo along with uh, Michael Horn, and we're here uh, at the ASU GSV uh, Summit, uh, the annual summit in uh, San Diego, beautiful San Diego, but chilly, uh, San Diego, uh, California, and with one of the founders of this great conference from uh, GSV, uh, Deb Quazo. It's great to be here with you. Thank you. Thrilled to be here. So, Deb, um, one of the questions that we ask uh, almost all of our guests who are on Future You is, how did you get started in, in education why, and why the passion for education? Um, yeah, you know, gosh, it goes back 20 years, um, and I will probably 21 years actually at this point, and I um, was an investment banker and actually began to work with my partner, Michael Moe, um, who had begun to write some white paper research, the, you know, putting out the thesis that uh, the education sector, which was actually not viewed to be an investable sector, uh, had all the characteristics of an, up, of an emerging um, important sector. I have a huge fragmentation, large chunk of GDP, high, you know, dramatic inefficiencies, little, you know, little touched by technology, et cetera. Um, and, you know, I got taken with the thesis. Hmm. And, um, and then it became, you know, very clear to me and to us as, as a group that the ability to take education innovation and move it forward uh, was sort of a, a key wedge to allowing all people to have access to the future, which is sort of our overall arching uh, motto. And so, you know, the further I got into it, the more passionate I became. It was it was not always a, um, the early days were tough because it was not a sector uh, particularly ready for transformation. Um, I think we, we, are, we were finally at a moment where uh, where things look to be happening uh, in a very positive, with a very positive tenor, which is exciting. And how does this summit play into it? And for those people who've never been to this mm-hmm. thing, how do you describe what ASU GSP yeah, is? Yeah, well, I mean, the ASU GSP, we like to call it um, a, a strange cocktail of people. Uh, it's a, you know, what we are particularly proud of is that we we pull people into a, a venue who would not necessarily be in the same room together. So it's, you know, K-12, pre-K-12, acad- you know, teachers and principal, really principals and school leaders and district leaders. It's higher education leaders. It's investors. It's over 400 CEOs of technology companies. It's very global. We have huge contingents from China and India and Europe and other places. Um, it's grown a lot. We'll be, you know, over 4,100 people this year, uh, up from 350 when we started nine wow. years Holy ago. Cow, so it's right? been a, it's been a pretty um, pretty material increase in the uh, in the attendees. Um, but and we've and we've this year we've really worked hard to enrich the workforce part of the community. So it's not an quote ed tech conference, which be, uh, it is a talent technology conference mm. focused on what we call the pre K to gray um, arc of learning and talent. Because if we're not focused on the workforce, if we're only focused on education and innovation without the workforce outcomes, then we're sort of completely missing the point from our view. So we it's a it's a unique place. It's very senior level people. People get things done. You can very you know you can have lots of meetings with lots of different types of people, foundations, um, politicians, policymakers, uh, media, you know, et cetera. So we, we're we're really proud that we think we've just attracted a very diverse set of humans uh, who, who all care passionately about um, the idea of optimizing talent um, and so in human human talent um, and uh, so so that's I think that's the special sauce is this this sort of strange cocktail that we're we're very proud to uh, have curated and as you said it's just absolutely exploded from nine mm. years ago when yes. we were all huddled uh, at Sky yeah, Song and ASU absolutely. so you've had a heck of a perch to be able to watch higher education yeah. over that time period how has it evolved in that time period, and where do you see it going? 
higher education specifically? Yeah, let's let's, yeah, let's focus. I, I mean, obviously, you wear yeah, a lot of hats, but let's, yeah. let's focus on higher ed for a moment. Sure. We um, it, it has been really interesting. Uh, the sector, we actually, the growth of the, the summit, you know, it's not causal, but the growth of the summit does sort of mimic uh, the increased act, you know, investment activity in the sector, which mm-hmm. is interesting. Um, I think the from higher ed's perspective, there is, the, the MOOCs were obviously the first big story in 2011 um, in terms of just busting open uh, the, the category from an innovation perspective. I think, you know, there's a lot of skepticism about whether the MOOCs were, uh, what, what they, you know, what they were really going to do at the end of the day. We have a panel coming up, gosh, today or tomorrow, um, with the, the CEOs of Coursera, edX, uh, the Shenhua MOOC, which is fascinating. Yeah, it's like 12 million students It's fascinating. Right? Yeah. Um, heading, they're a for-profit, actually, heading to an IPO, uh, as is written on the walls of their office wow. in Beijing, um, in 2021, they believe. So, uh, yeah, so we have all the Udacity, um, so who, all of whom have developed really different and interesting sort of models for their businesses that are that are all, each individually wildly successful, in my humble view. So, um, so I think that the the higher education sector, we obviously we, we clearly need to um, on the, we have this perverse situation where you have declining enrollments in traditional in many traditional institutions particularly in the middle we have demographic trends that are working you know headwinds that are going to work against us coming forward this terrific new book on the whole demographic challenge um, and at the same time we have 30 percent of our population with degrees and you know somewhere between 60 and 80 percent of our population is going to need to have some form of credential in order to be uh, to be able to participate in the in the future economy even the current economy so I think the I think the positive pressures in the higher ed segment to you know how do we how do we get how do we get bigger chunks of the population having the kinds of higher education skills and credentials that um, that are going to allow them to work and that may not be a degree per se probably won't be a degree per mm-hmm. se necessarily that will be part of the package but I think the um, the innovation impetus uh, for higher education has never been higher uh, and I think it's 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 fascinating um, do you see existing institutions filling that void and innovating, or do you think it's going to be upstart institutions? We're obviously sitting here on the heels of General Assembly, yeah. uh, just having been acquired uh, for, for, for nice sum. So, where do you see that innovation coming from? Yeah, I think it. I think it's both. I mean, I think you have um, you have the ASUs and the Southern New Hampshires and the Northeasterns, and just I mean, it, those are three institutions that you wouldn't we wouldn't have been sitting here ten years ago talking about in terms of. I mean, ASU had just begun become our partner ten years ago. People thought we were crazy because mm-hmm. uh, no one talked about ASU as a center of innovation or um, the kind of excellence that they have now they have now clearly and preeminently preeminently established. So I think that you know over the last decade we've had some very material institutions come out of nowhere. Effectively, um, those three are, are, are particularly notable with very you know large numbers of students um, to to really create you know create new paths and new um, alternatives. So I think you're going to have quote traditional universities. Purdue will become certainly coming along with their Kaplan acquisition. Um, Mitch Daniels is certainly hell-bent on uh, scaling that institution as well. So I think you'll have traditional institutions on the one hand creating new and innovative ways to deliver, you know, larger, you know, President Crow's objective has always been to deliver uh, more scale, uh, degrees at greater scale, both online and offline. So I think you'll see that. And then you'll see the General Assembly's ADECO acquiring in the yesterday. Fascinating that a staffing company is going to move forward. You know, the other one, the interesting one, WeWork buying Flatiron School. I mean, we're going to see 
all kinds of, I mean, we were, that makes so much sense. I mean, they are the new form of work. So why shouldn't people be learning at work? They have to be, you know, we think this whole, the whole phenomenon of the workforce, the workplace becoming a place for education, you know, a real place for education, valid place for education is critical. So it's actually funny because when you first introduced general assembly to me, and I think it was you that first told me about them uh, several years ago, that's actually how you described it was Mm -hmm. the merging of education and work together in one place. So and I think that's where we're heading. I, I think it, you know, it, you know, the, the AT and of the world who've really come out and said, you know, our workforce, I mean, the vast majority of our workforce is not trained today to do the work that we actually need them to do today, and not to mention tomorrow, um, is going to put huge pressures on um, have, on enterprises and the gig economy workforces broadly to provide educational, um, you know, effective ed- education so, so people can operate. So Deb, as you look to the future, what are some of the broad themes that you think are going to emerge in terms of where the investment's going to go? Um, you know, and, and you still want to stick with higher ed or more well, broad? Let's, let's, let's stick yeah. with higher ed. Okay. So I, I think that the, I, I think you're going to continue. Well, obviously there's a huge amount of, um, you know, work around AI and machine learning. I think people are, we're, we're going to continue an adaptive platform. So I think we've still not really seen anyone break out effectively um, in, in, you know, the ASU is so fascinating to be a, to partner with because they've been such an aggressive um, tester of mm-hmm. every product that's out there. So it's a great, it's a great window for us to be able to talk to that, to that team about kind of what's working and what's, what's not working. So I think you will continue to see people try to perfect the investment in truly adaptive digital platforms. Um, and whether that's the, whether that's integrating AI or uh, deep learning for that, I think there's a lot of move afoot around how do we actually now move forward to deep learning and, and make some of the manual processes of, of um, these platforms eliminate some of the manual processes. So I think you'll see a lot there. I also think you'll continue to see really innovative um, alternatives. And Trilogy Education is actually a great example of a company I could shoot myself for not investing in. <laughs> but, um, you know, they've really taken, just brilliantly taken the continuing ed market, high brand universities, and providing um, boot camp services in partnership with the, with Northwestern and um, high brand universities at Rutgers, others are all around the country in tapping into their continuing education um, population, which is like which is a stunningly large population. I can't remember the, the number. I talked to the guy at Rutgers. I was I was blown away by the number hmm. of students sitting in the continuing ed pool at Rutgers. So I think you'll continue to see innovators like that um, come. Dan Summers, the CEO there, get, come around and creating you know brand new, thoughtful, smart ideas that are really bringing bringing um, efficacious learning into the adult market, higher learning into the adult market. So I like your idea about blending you know, work in, in education, and we've talked about this previously on a, a previous episode of Future You. I've written a lot about this, especially when it comes to the gig economy. So if you're, if you're an employee working for an employer, makes sense, right? But what if you're, you know, we know that there's been a huge growth in the freelance marketplace, uh, even among highly educated people. What happens when you're no longer more to an employer who might be providing that professional training, that education? How do people like that in this future economy, how are they going to be able to navigate figure out where to get it, what to get, and yeah. even how to pay for it. Yeah, I think that, well, I think there's, it's the consumer, um, you know, the companies that are delivering in a, in a consumer format, whether it's Udemy, Pluralsight really started consumer, now has really moved to the enterprise, but Codecademy, I mean, the, mm-hmm. there's a plethora of, you know, uh, companies that are delivering workforce learning to individuals on a con- in a consumer model. Um, and I think those will continue to develop. I met with a great group yesterday that's working on um, social and emotional learning for 
the workplace, actually, we see, talk mm. so much about it in K-12, but working on, on a model for the workplace that could be delivered both as a, in a consumer and an enterprise model. So I think, I think, the, I think the people, the content's going to continue to get better. You, you know, it's everything from the master classes of the world doing, you know, very high-end, uh, unique, but being used by, used by people in the arts industries and, and other industries. So I think we'll continue to see great content being produced that you, you as a consumer can purchase and make you better and make you more qualified for your, for your work today or your work tomorrow or a new job you want to do but I think the um, and I think the, the great point on the how you pay for it um, so I think that is the real challenge I do think we've seen um, we, we're seeing lots of, of, of companies take wax at payment models mm-hmm. and um, and how we uh, you know how do we whether you're, you're whether you're doing kind of an income share type arrangement where someone's going to be paid back for you know out of their future in their future income stream or whether you're doing it in a um, a placement model where people are taking courses and then that those courses are you know, trilogy is a good example then then making job placement for the um, for that individual and actually the the employer is paying for the the learning that happens so I think that there are going to be all kinds of artful ways for us to 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 be able to finance folks who can't pay out of pocket to to improve their their skills um, and so I think that there's a lot of a lot of headspace going into that problem and I think it should be a very big industry honestly because I think it's if you really believe that that lifelong learning is now becoming we've been talking about it for decades but if it's really <laughs> now essential um, and I think it now is really essential um, and unless you're old enough like me that you're not going to have that you don't have to do it but my children certainly are going to um i think it's i think it's really quite an exciting potential um investment category no that's super helpful and i I appreciate you joining us because whenever we're trying to figure out where the puck is going in this space (laughs) you've been a leading light of that really you know you've created this conference that has put a vision together brought a bunch of us to the desert uh, almost a decade ago and yep. then uh, continue to shine that light forward. So thanks so much for joining thank, us on uh, you. Uh, Future it. You. And, and we'll be right back. Thank you. This episode of Future You was made possible with support from the Academy for Innovative Higher Education Leadership. The Academy is a partnership between Arizona State University and Georgetown University and is the premier training ground for those who aspire to senior leadership positions in higher education and those who want to lead organizational change at colleges and universities in the future. For more information and to apply to our next cohort, go to georgetown.asu.edu. This episode was also made possible with support from the Entangled Group, where innovation meets operations. Entangled is a venture studio focused on helping the education ecosystem transition to support the knowledge economy. We build companies and nonprofits that support higher education institutions as they innovate to carry out their critical missions for society in the 21st century. And welcome back. We're here live at the ASU GSV uh, Summit um, in the ASU GSV uh, Marketplace. Uh, so you'll hear a lot of background noise as people start uh, waking up here in San Diego. Yes, things we got an early start, but everybody else seems to be finally uh, finally waking up. Uh, you know, we, we talked to Deb about what um, this ASU GSV Summit is. It's less than ten years, um, but she said something like more than four thousand people here uh, this year. Michael, you've been coming to these right from the beginning. That first year. Yeah. When it was much smaller. It was in the desert at, at Sky Song. What, uh, what was that like that first year, and, and how has it changed in the years you've been coming? I think Deb said it was like 300 people or something like that is what she said. I, I, I remember it being a small, intimate gathering. It felt like a bunch of us out there to change the world. I remember Michael Crow speaking, president of Arizona State, of course, and uh, just being like, wow, he gets this vision of what education could be. This is exciting. 
but it was a small group of us. And I remember a couple years of that. And then uh, Deborah and, and her partner, Michael Moe, uh, in, in creating this conference, we, we used to have these advisory gatherings after the uh, conference where we, we would debrief and talk about themes for next year and think about where this was going. And I remember maybe three years into it, we said, gosh, it's feeling a little overheated. There's a lot more people coming here. It's probably like 900 people or something like that. And, uh, and Michael said, this can be bigger. It's going to be even bigger. And I, I remember thinking, oh, my goodness, are you sure that's a good idea? And it's grown to 4,000 plus people. It's totally mirrored the investment in this sector. And I, I wouldn't just say that. I think the innovation from traditional institutions as well. And, and that's what's made it maybe work more than I had expected when they said, let's keep growing, was I think I had a skepticism that, it, uh, you know, what would it look like if sort of it was barbarians at the gate style uh, innovation. And But it's evolved. It really is a conversation of pre-K through gray, as Deborah put it. And it's really a conversation of employers and traditional institutions, traditional educators being part of a conversation, asking themselves, how do we innovate to better serve individuals and society and not make those uh, a false dichotomy? Right. I showed up in, in year three uh, when, when it was at uh, Skysong at uh, ASU. Uh, and I remember meeting, I was in the process of reporting my first book, uh, College Unbound at the time. And I remember meeting people like Jake Schwartz from, mm-hmm. from General Assembly and, and Gunnar Councilman, mm-hmm. uh, who's now with Entangled. And so I, I remember meeting all these people for the first time and, and, and understanding Understanding, uh, because I was still with the Chronicle at that point, that there was this whole new uh, infrastructure, uh, this whole new uh, you know learning economy growing up around uh, higher education. That, to be honest with you, I think most people in traditional higher ed. Um, I have never quite uh, understood. And, and so when I explain to people I'm coming to this conference, you know, when I, when I talk to people within the, you know, the traditional higher education ecosystem, many of them haven't even heard of it, um, which I think is a challenge uh, uh, for, this, uh, uh, for this conference, uh, is how do we bring in um, a traditional higher ed? Because my theory of change is that um, it's, it, you know, traditional institutions are still going to exist even probably in 50 and 100 years. There'll probably be fewer of them. Yep. But how do we bring them into this conversation at a, at a conference like this? Yeah, and something that's always struck me is I, I like conferences that I know where I'm going to. And so the conversation here is very much innovation investment. That is a key part of it. And I like a clear thesis around that because I know why I'm there. Uh, but I think where educators need to be at the table, and it's been so important to have them brought into this conversation in this conference over the years, is to really drive and inform that conversation. So it's not sort of innovation uh, in, in a vacuum for its own sake, but toward a purpose with a respect for where we've been, why things are done the way they are, and a sobering reality often of you know what this looks like, where, where rubber meets the road, if you will, of working with students, employers, and so forth. And that it's not just blow everything up uh, style education, which I, I agree with you. I, you know, traditional institutions will clearly continue to exist into the future. They are clearly going to continue to play a very large role in shaping what education looks like uh, and what society looks like. Uh, you know, it's a direct reflection. And, and as we think about, you know, not just teaching, but knowledge creation and all these functions that universities play in society. Uh, I, I think it's been really healthy to bring those voices in and involve them. And, and I'm struck, you know, I'm on a panel uh, at this conference where I'm moderating a panel about personalizing learning in the K-12 sphere. It's all districts on the panel. A few years ago, it would have been all charters. And a few right. years before that, it would have been no educators, period. Right. Uh, you, you know, maybe not fair, but but basically that's the trend. And I think that's uh, how how much we've seen this conference evolve in just under a decade 
And it's going to be very interesting to see what the next five to 10 years of that looks like. Well, and I think Deb gave us a little bit of a preview of that where she talked about this is not just an tech conference anymore, right? right. We, we are talking about the future of learning and work um, and how they're blending uh, uh, together, which is something we've we've touched upon on this on this podcast uh, uh, before. I, I, I just finished this piece that appeared in The Atlantic uh, this week around this idea of not only blending of, of work and uh, learning, but also the idea of blending kind of face-to-face learning and, uh, and virtual learning uh, at the same time, right? Uh, kind of taking off on this uh, uh, announcement a couple months ago by, by WeWork, uh, where they're bringing in 2U, and 2U is going to provide their online courses uh, to, uh, to people in WeWork um, and also allows people who are enrolled in uh, 2U courses to uh, go into WeWork to do study groups, to take tests. Um, and eventually, uh, the way Chaposik, uh, the CEO uh, and co-founder of um, of 2U of talks about it, uh, it will also allow them uh, to maybe start new programs that require physical space. Um, and this is kind of really an interesting development. You know, we kind of had these two silos of, of higher education kind of continuing to grow up side by side, right? Uh, you know, you had online only, um, you had, uh, you know, face-to-face learning. You know, a number of institutions were experimenting with, with hybrid uh, uh, education. But it seems that people are now kind of understanding what works online and what doesn't and what works face-to-face. And some people will always have to pick online only, and some people will always want to pick face-to-face only. But, but given what Deb was talking about in terms of the trends of, of this idea of continual learning uh, throughout uh, somebody's lifetime, a lot of that learning is going to be happening on the job. It's clear to me that that's not going to be able to just be online or just be face-to-face, but we're going to have to blend those worlds when we're learning on the job. Yeah, and I was so excited you wrote this piece and want to geek out on it um, from an innovation theory perspective where where obviously my roots are. it's really interesting. If you look at, for, forget about higher ed for, for a moment, but the disruptive innovation in uh, uh, consumer retail. Yeah. So right, which is what the headline Amazon, was, right? right? How exactly. higher and education how is going to be like retail. Yeah, and which so you, I think when people read that headline, they were a little worried. Terrified. Are they going out yeah. of business? <laughs> uh, but, so, so, but you have Amazon.com, et cetera, disruptive relative to full-service department uh, stores uh, like Macy's and things like that. And what's interesting is, so Macy's obviously has an online store, Macy's.com. Yeah. But it's what we would call a hybrid innovation, actually. It's taking the new technology and putting it in the old business model. Whereas Amazon now is starting to introduce brick-and-mortar stores, but they don't have inventory. They don't look like a Macy's. They don't have the same service and and fully staffed departments in the same way that a Macy's would. Much lower infrastructure, but it gives you that personal touch that a face-to-face experience does. And so in my mind, we always say disruptive innovations start as primitive, and then they get better and better over time. And they start to lock in more and more features and be able to solve more complicated problems as they go up market. That face-to-face interface, if you will, uh, is that upmarket approach. And you can see it with Bonobos, yep. Warby Parker, et cetera. So what I think is happening in higher ed now is the same thing. We've seen a lot of higher ed institutions create hybrids. And, and Clay Christensen and I wrote about this for the New York Times in 2013, I think, where just similar to uh, 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 sailing ships, they just stacked on steam engines on the top of it. Um, and that's what a lot of institutions did, was just put online learning and layer it on top of the business model. What I think with the 2U announcement with WeWork, which I thought was just a brilliant move, uh, is that they're saying online is starting to put face-to-face components uh, for the same reason you said. This is how we have to get yep. better, drive better engagement, do things we couldn't do in the online environments, create communities. 
But more interestingly, from my perspective, the, the way that they're going to do it is not going to look like a traditional college campus organized by department, organized by, you know, physics is over here, I go over here for humanities, etc. But it's really going to be a co-working space where that blending of learning and work uh, happens and you have people from companies sitting alongside of learners creating community solving problems together getting to apply the learning and create new programs I suspect almost real time for needs that uh, those people in those communities have and so I think it's going to look very different from what uh, some of those hybrid programs on the other side look like I think it's fascinating and I also think it could be uh, as Rich DeMille put in the article from uh, Georgia Tech's uh, Center for 21st Century Universities it could really be the storefront uh, for the university again if you're using if you're using the Warby Parker or the Bonobos uh, uh, model um, right you and even that really it was Apple that kind of started this it's this idea of curating products right when you walked into the Apple store when they first opened it wasn't like walking into Best Buy where they have like stacks, sure, of, stacks everything, of things and right? a, a huge um, warehouse right. in the back and, yeah. and if you think of a traditional university in that way that's what you do right you walk in and you have everything but what if we had kind of a storefront for universities where you can go there you can take a, a master class you can meet with advisors, but you don't have everything uh, that uh, that traditionally comes with a with a legacy uh, university. So the other thing that I was interested in what in what Deb talked about is kind of where things are going, and and, and wanted to, to see what else you thought about her, especially on deeper learning and yeah. AI in particular. This is something I think we're going to have to uh, f- uh, geek out more on yeah. an, on, a f- on a future episode of Future You. But you know, I, I, deeper learning, artificial intelligence, adaptive learning you know, to personalize. This has been a topic, obviously, Jeff, that's gotten a lot of investment over the years. There's been a lot of hype cycles around. It kind of feels a little like solar energy for a long time. It's, <laughs> uh, you know, it's it's been seven years away for, for 40 years. Um, we're not obviously at that stage of adaptive learning, but it, there is something that's extraordinarily complicated. And I'm working on a piece right now, actually, about how sort of this Netflix for education has been this phrase that people mm-hmm. have been dreaming of for a long time. And maybe it's the wrong phrase because, <laughs> you know, Netflix and Amazon, they're great at giving you recommendations, but they're wrong at least 50% of the time. And that just might not square in education when you think about it. And education is a vastly more complicated endeavor than just what movie do I want to watch next. Yeah, and so this is something we're definitely going to have to uh, look more closely on. I noticed the Chronicle of Higher Education just did a special issue mostly focused on on AI, and I think it's kind of a hot topic now, so we definitely want to look at that uh, in the future. So it's been great to be with you here from uh, the ASU GSV conference. Uh, We'll be here uh, also with you next week with Michael Crow, the president of of Arizona State University, and for Michael Horn and I, uh, uh, please uh, rate us and, uh, and subscribe Subscribe to us wherever you're listening to this podcast, and and we'll see you next week.